If you would stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Um, Today, Ryan will be preaching from um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, that it is bold and true and good. We thank you that we have access to your word. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is alive and active in us. God, I pray for Ryan as he preaches today that your word will go forth and stand and his will um, fall away, but give him strength, courage, um, joy, and wisdom as he preaches. Open our hearts and minds um, to hear what you have for us today. And it's in your good, powerful name we pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can be seated. Morning. Great to see you this morning. Uh, We are, as Megan said, continuing in a series of messages where we've been going through Jesus's Sermon on the Mount that starts in Matthew chapter 5 and and continues on through uh, chapter 7. And what we've been looking at in the past several weeks are these Beatitudes, these, these descriptions of what the transformed, blessed life looks like in the kingdom of God. And so Jesus now moves on from the individual description of what it looks like to be blessed in this kind of countercultural way to then talk about what it looks like for these transformed individuals to be kind of set free in community. And so today we look at this idea of, of salt and light, uh, what it looks like when believers who have been set free by the gospel are kind of running wild in the, in the family of God, right, in a good way. Um, several years ago, a friend of mine was, was um, uh, he has a few kids, but he was talking, he was praying, talking to me about one of his children who was, uh, maybe, maybe we'd call it a prodigal, a prodigal child, a child that had kind of walked away from the faith, walked away from the local church, walked away from a relationship with the Lord during that season of their life. And I know, I know some of us have those kinds of situations in our own families, and so I want to be sensitive to that. But his, his, his question to me was, was really kind of unique because he said, you know, uh, my my kids, my, my, my son, is, he's, he's kind of tiptoeing back into the faith. And he was overjoyed by this, but was like, man, I really want to help him take the next right step uh, into that. And so he was talking about uh, some, uh, helping him find a church in the area that he was in. And, um, and so he had thought about some churches that were maybe a little more, I guess you could maybe say seeker sensitive, maybe a little more palatable to the taste of a new believer, uh, someone who's walking in to the faith. And he ran this idea by his son, and his son said something shocking to him, and, and, I, and I love it. He said, Dad, I don't want to go to a church that looks like the world. He said, I'm walking away from that. Haven't you taught me year after year that the church is supposed to be distinct from the culture? It's supposed to be different. And he said, his dad stepped back and said, okay, son, you, you've got, you clearly have it. You understand. We are the called out ones. That's what ecclesia means, called out ones. That's who we are. Jesus teaches us today that the the transformed individual is one who is distinct from this world. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Because our tendency is to see the radical nature 
of what God does in a Christian and try to hide it so that it's a more palatable form of Christianity for our friends, something they can kind of tiptoe into. But if there's anything you see in people that follow Jesus, you don't tiptoe into it. It is a radical move to follow Jesus. In my experience, and I see this time and time again, it is the distinctiveness of the Christian lifestyle coupled with unconditional love that draws unbelievers to faith by the Spirit of God. And, um, and here's the deal about what's going on in New City Church now that many of you may not know. We have several brand new believers in this church. And, and I'm not talking about, I mean, it's, it's amazing when a covenant child comes to grasp their faith. I'm talking about adults who have walked out of the darkness and are now walking into the light. And for some of us, it's, it's amazing. I, I'm telling you, coming out of the pandemic, I'm so thankful for the distinctiveness of the church now. So thankful. It's so attractive to people that want to walk out of bondage into the light. And some of us have become complacent in our distinctiveness, uh, in our pursuit of distinctiveness as Christians, and we need to learn from the new believers because, friends, they don't want to go back. They don't want to look like the world. And so here's our big idea for today. The only way to have a true gospel relevance in the world is to be distinct from the world. So let's dig into this together today. Really got two points that I want to talk about. The first one has to do with what we have to get out of our lives. And the, first one, and the second one has to do with what we put into our lives. So the, the first point is this, is that if you're a note taker, we must evict the barrier of Christian witness, which is fear, like Megan talked about. And the second one is this, is that, um, is that we must learn to live publicly. And we're gonna look at the role of preservation, purity, and proximity in Christian witness that Jesus speaks about. So let's dig into that first point together. We must evict the barrier of Christian witness, which is fear. If you've got a Bible, I would love for you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. This is the sermon before the sermon if you're new here. So that was a joke. You guys awake? So what, what makes our lives lose flavor, this, this saltiness, this attractiveness? What makes us blend in with this dark world? It's fear of man. It's exactly what it is. Fear keeps us from embracing our distinct identity in this world. Jesus says this, you are salt. You are light. He doesn't say like, hey, you gotta go figure out how to be salt and, and kind of ease into being light. He says, no, it's who you are. You're salt and you're light. It's who you are from the moment that you receive Jesus. You're salt and you're light. And these are things that other people experience through our relationship with Jesus. And Peter says something interesting. He says that that salt and light solicit a certain response from others as we live that out in the open. And the context of this is that believers are experiencing a degree of hostility from others as they live publicly, live their faith out publicly. Megan, can you bring that water up to me, please? I'm sorry, guys. I'm really parched this morning. Thank you. It's a cute bottle, too, isn't it? I like that. First Peter 3, and this is really connected to this idea of persecution. First Peter 3, 13 through 17. And Peter is, we're going to look at Peter's life, Peter's walk with Jesus, kind of from a 50,000-foot view, but this is kind of toward the end of Peter's life. And here's what he says about this idea of the distinctiveness of the church. He says, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake or, or be harmed for what you believe, 
you'll be blessed. Well, Jesus just told us about that last week, didn't he? He says, have no fear of them, those that harm you, those that come against you, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Peter's saying that as we embrace this identity in Jesus, you are salt, you are light, people will approach us. Most of the time I think about evangelism, I think about me having to go approach people. Jesus says there is something about living in a distinct way in this world. When you live it out in the open, people will actually approach you. That's a crazy thing because we don't think, most of the time we think about Christian apologetics of of knocking down everyone's claims against the gospel, being able to answer every question, and it keeps us kind of in this perpetual paralysis of living faithfully distinct lives. If we refuse to live like cultural chameleons, we shine like lights in this dark world. That's what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 15. We're shining as lights among this broken and twisted generation. And he says, when you live like this, others will come and question you. But the thing that they will question is the fact that you have hope. Your hope is what they will question because there is no hope in this world. He says that there is a potential barrier against this identity in each of us, though, and that it's fear. He says, don't fear them as they question your hope. Fear in the Bible is all over the place because it's all over our lives. Fear and worship are are, uh, linked. And here's the reason. Fear is the knee-jerk reaction to protecting what we worship. It is impossible for an image bearer of God to not worship. Every single one of us worship. Every single person out there worships. Um, And likewise, it's impossible to not fear. Fear is always going to be a part of your life. The question is, what do you fear and how does it manifest itself in your life? We find out that we ultimately fear God so little because we fear man so much. And the Bible commands us not to fear hundreds and hundreds of times, yet fear is the thing that we allow to live inside of us, and it wreaks havoc on our obedience. It keeps us in the dark. It keeps us under the bushel. It keeps us complacent. It keeps us from obeying our Father who's called us to walk as light in this dark world. It's like Megan asked, what would you do if you were not afraid today? When you think about your public witness out in the open, among others, shining his light in this dark world that's twisted and broken, what would you do if you were not afraid? Think about that. Sit in that. If you don't hear any other question today, any other thing, ask yourself that. What would you do? How would you live if you were not afraid? Where does fear show up most intensely in your life? I think it shows up in our public witness of our resurrected Savior, at least in my life. We're all so afraid to testify with our lives and words about Jesus. And there's not one person in here who's not afraid. Some of us are afraid of our reputations being destroyed, pushing our kids and our friends away for what God has done in us and displaying that. 
Some of us are afraid that we'll be boxed into this group of people that we have so little in common with, those narrow-minded Christians. Some of us are afraid that it will cost us friendships and that we will have to sabotage our intellect. Some of us are afraid that we, have, that we don't have the right words to say or that our lives and past actions will be judged more strictly for what we say that we now believe. Some of us, most, perhaps most horrifying of all, are afraid that the gospel just won't do anything. That it will just fall on deaf ears like, like seed that's sown that doesn't germinate and we fear that it won't be relevant. We're all afraid. It's the one thing we have in common in here today. But listen to what Peter goes on to say. He says, in your hearts, and this is key, honor Christ the Lord as holy. What does that word Lord mean to you? He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that you have. The antidote to the fear of man that we struggle with is the fear of God through the honor of his lordship in our lives. We think that the antidote is having a repository of answers that we can answer anyone who comes up and asks us any question. We think that the antidote is living this perfectly tidy and righteous life. But the antidote has nothing to do with your neighbor. It has everything to do with who you are to your Lord and how you relate to him. It's between you and God, and the word is lordship. Lordship is a word that doesn't make much sense to our American vernacular, does it? When's the last time you thought about lordship? When's the last word you used the word lord? And we say this, and I say this because our, out of all of the things that this great country has provided us, it has provided, uh, on the other side of that, a, 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 I think a terrible framework for what true freedom is. (laughs) That's a pretty bold thing to say, isn't it? Here's what I mean by that. We imagine freedom to mean that there is no authority in our lives, no one to tell us what to do, no one to submit to. That's the American idea. That's the idea of freedom for most Americans. Just think about the last time, hint, hint, in the pandemic, when some government official mandated that you do something. How did you respond, right? We don't like those ideas, and don't go into politics. Stay with me here. Lordship does not mean no authority. Lordship means complete submission to the proper authority. Here's what R.C. Sproul said. He says, the irony of the New Testament lordship is that only in slavery to Christ can a man discover authentic freedom. Think about that. Slavery is way more intense than any any other idea of submission that we can think about. But that is the biblical framework for finding true freedom. Isn't that wild to think about it like that? The Bible says, for freedom, Christ has set you free. And we say, amen, let's go. But then we leave out Romans 6.22. You have been set free from sin and you have become slaves to righteousness. That is the essence of true freedom, friends. So back to this idea of being questioned about the hope that you have. If we were wondering why people, and I wonder this, why are people not asking me about the hope that I have? I mean, Peter says, if I'm living out in the open, if I'm living as salt and light, people will question me about the hope that I have. Why do you have any hope? So if you're anything like me and you're wondering why people don't ask you that as much as you'd like, I think, I think that the temptation is to think that it's a, 
tactical evangelistic problem, but it's a lordship problem. And Peter is a man that can write to us and speak to our hearts as a man uh, that speaks from experience. So let's work with me here. Let's, let's talk about this idea of a story arc of fear. And the thing that I want you to ask yourself is, where is fear currently present in your life when you think about your public witness of living as salt and light in this world? Let's think about Peter's life. When Peter first started to follow Jesus, he was the most zealous and apparently fearless man that there was. You remember in Matthew chapter 26, verse 33, when Jesus says, hey, you guys are going to fall away from me, Peter says, Lord, he says, even if all of them fall away, I never will. 36 verses later, do you know what happens? Yeah, what happens? He has this prideful zeal to start. There's this shameful embarrassment. Peter's warming himself up by the fire. Jesus is being arrested. Hey, weren't you that guy with Jesus? No, I don't know who you're talking about, man. Does it three times, the rooster, the rooster crows immediately filled with shame and embarrassment because he was terrified to testify to the, to the, to the um, crucified Lord, to the, to the Savior of the world who's being arrested. He didn't want any identification with him. But then, just a short time later, in John chapter 21, when Jesus appears on the earth, one of the places that he appears is the first place that he met Peter, or the first place we see in the scriptures that he met Peter. You know where that was? On the Sea of Galilee, Matthew chapter 4. Jesus says, hey, you follow me and I'll make you fishers of men, right? Well, Jesus meets Peter in the same place. This time, Peter's gone back to fishing, and Jesus meets him on the beach, and he's made this fire over there. And Jesus calls out, he says, hey, guys, have you caught any fish? <laughs> They're like, we've been out here all night. We haven't caught anything. And then Peter, and then he says, hey, cast the net on the other side. They haul in like 157 fish. It's really specific. You can read it. Um, into the boat, and then Peter knows immediately it was the Lord. So what's Peter do? That same zeal that he had in Matthew 26, he jump, he you know, strips butt naked, just jumps in the water, swims to the shore, right? And he goes over to the beach, and Jesus meets him. And he asks him three times. And why do you think he asked him three times? Because he denied him three times. He asked him three times, you know, do you love me, Peter? Feed my sheep. You know, Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Do you love me more than these, Peter? Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Take care of my lambs, Peter. The last word that Jesus says to Peter before he ascends is what? Follow me. He restores Peter. He delivers him from the shameful embarrassment of his inability to live publicly and faithfully to Jesus, and he restores him. And then we see this unashamed witness as Jesus ascends and the Holy Spirit falls in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 4, verses 19 and 20. Peter and John are arrested. by They're, they're like before the Sanhedrin, and they're saying, you cannot speak in the name of Jesus anymore. Acts 4, 19 and 20, I love this passage. He says, hey, whether it's right in the sight of God to obey you uh, rather than God, you've got to judge this, Mr. Sanhedrin guys, okay? For we cannot help but speak of what we've seen. We can't help but be salt. We can't help but be light. Take our lives, we don't care. It's who we 
are. Lastly, Peter writes to us. Peter equips the saints for the work of ministry and our desire to live as salt and light in this world. So I want to ask you this question now. Where is fear in your life? Where do you see fear on this story arc of fear in your own journey to lordship? Maybe maybe you're a, a brand new believer and you are just pridefully zealous. Blessings, it's great. The Lord's gonna humble you. Just know that he's there when he does, okay? It's great. I mean, all of us are there at some point. But I have the feeling that most of us are kind of in that shameful embarrassment place this morning. That's the, that's the sense that I have because that's the place I tend to, to live in the most. What would it look like to see Jesus meeting you on the shore like he did Peter, restoring you with the gospel of forgiveness? Listen, we're all ashamed of Jesus. We all are. We are all ashamed of him. We all deny him. We have all forgotten him by the way that we live, by the way that we speak. And he forgives us. That's the idea of grace. What would it look like for you to receive the forgiveness of the Lord as you think about living publicly before him? Because it's then and only then does salt and life come into the equation for us this morning. So let's dig into the, the, the actual sermon I'm preaching now, which is about salt and light. We must learn to live publicly. So what's the role of purity and preservation and proximity in our witness? Those are all things that salt and light relate to. As Christ followers, it means that we have submitted to his lordship. Now, we do it imperfectly, but we submit to his lordship. And it means that we are now slaves, but slaves to righteousness. That means that his word and his commands take precedent over anything else in our lives. That's the idea of lordship, is that what the king says is the most important word in your life, and you submit to it. And if we don't submit to the king, then we have to repent. Because we are now, if you are in Christ, you are salt and light, which means you are a slave to righteousness. That's who you are. And so the things that are not aligned in our life, the misplaced fear that's in our life, it has to come and has to bow its knee to King Jesus. And then and only then do we get questioned about this hope that we have because we're living as salt and light in this dark and tasteless world. So to follow Jesus is to crawl out from under the basket publicly. As Peter says, we do this with gentleness and respect, I love that he puts those qualifiers on there. That, that that is the essence of how salt and light is lived out in this world that invokes a questioning of the hope that we have. Salt and light. So when you live your life out in the open with other believers, we ask the question, does it solicit questions about this hope? But when you think about this, if you're anything like me, I'm super convicted. I'm super convicted that I didn't get more explicit about my hope as I coached a bunch of little boys and their parents in baseball this year. I'm super convicted that I was more content to talk about the Braves than I was about the hope, my hope in the risen Lord Jesus when people would ask me about my life and my call. I missed an opportunity. So do you. You miss them every day. I miss them every day. I'm convicted that I zoned out when my unbelieving aunt and uncle were in town and just kind of hid under a basket I miss them just like you do, but I want to see them more, and I want to step into those moments more. So what would it look like to live out in the open today? Jesus says this. Let me read this passage one more time. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if salt has lost its taste, how should its saltiness be restored? It's a rhetorical question because salt cannot lose its saltiness. It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. He says, you are the light of the world. You're like a city that's set on a hill and it cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. He's the light of the world. We don't have to do anything. You just live in the open. Let your light shine so that they, the unbelieving world around us, may see the light shine through what? Good works. I tell you, Jesus is all about those good works. It leads to, our faith leads to good works in this world and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Gabe Lyons in his work, The Next Christians, this is 10 years ago. It's way ahead of his time when he wrote this. He says this, being salt and light demands two things, that we practice purity in the midst of a fallen world, and yet we live in proximity to this fallen world. If you don't hold both of these truths in tension, you invariably become useless and separated from the world that God loves. Man, that'll preach, won't it? Purity. Friends, God has not just saved us from this world. He saved us for this world. There is a certain purity of light that has a way of exposing the darkness, the lifelessness of this world. It's why cockroaches run from the light, right? It's why mold cannot grow in the light. Life cannot happen in the darkness. The purity in which Jesus has come and the purity in which Jesus has called you to is first and foremost his work in you. And I think the temptation is that, we all, that we all have is to take our new life in Christ and leave it locked up at home, to just leave it hidden. I don't want my coworkers to think that I'm crazy judgmental because of the rap that Christians get. Friends, Jesus has died to make you clean so that you can move toward the lepers of this world, no matter what they might do to you, no matter how they might stain your reputation or your life. And he did all of this to demonstrate the power of his amazing grace. What are you doing with the purity that God has created you to be? Are you willing to lean in and touch the proverbial lepers with your life? Are you willing to eat and dine with sinners and tax collectors and thus let our light shine before men? Or are we afraid to live out in the open because of what we're hiding about ourselves? I think oftentimes that's the case. We're so filled, going back to that ark, we're so filled with shame that we don't want any exposure. The gospel sets us free from that. Jesus gives us a warning about not not living this way. Here's what he says in Luke 11. He says, no one after lighting a lamp puts it in a, and we gotta back up here. Lighting a lamp, equivalent of turning on the one light bulb you have in the house, okay? (laughs) At this time. No, he says, this is crazy. No one, no one, lights the lamp, no one turns on the one light switch you've got in the center of your house and puts it in a cellar under a basket. That's crazy, right? But they put it on a stand so that those who enter, enter our lives, enter our houses, may see the light. He says, your eye is like the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, here's the warning, 
Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, have no part with darkness. It will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. It's a shivering warning for us this morning. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. The purifying effect of the gospel can be scary when it's not tethered to the lordship of Jesus, the reign of Jesus in our lives. And our exposure within and the exposure that comes in the world through our lives is ultimately God's doing, not ours. He's the one turning on the lamp. We are so afraid to repent. We are so afraid to, to utilize God's grace in community with others that we, we, we then just kind of dim the light and make our whole hearts dark because of the shame that we live in because of our own sin. And therefore, not ever, not ever actuating the lordship and the power of the gospel in our lives. And it makes us dull witnesses. It makes us tasteless and dark witnesses because we live in so much shame. What is it for you Today, you know, when we've got nothing to hide, the light shines through. The light shines through into our hearts. It shines through into the world because we're pointing people to the giver and maker of light, not ourselves. And we do that even through, maybe even especially through our repentance and community. What is it that's shiny and bright these days to you? What is it that's light to you? What is it that you're chasing? If it's Christ, make that known. If it's not, Jesus says, be careful. Be careful lest the light in you be darkness. Secondly, preservation. So Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. Now, the two predominant characteristics of salt, I'm sure you've heard this before. This is not new. It's not rocket scientists, uh, science. Um, preservation and flavoring, right? Two predominant qualities of salt. So Christ inside of you and me is both preserving and flavoring this tasteless world, this decaying world. Gabe Lyons goes on to say this, and this is really good from that same book. He says, salt is only useful when it's good, active, and engaged. Salt doesn't preserve anything by itself. It must be attached to something in order to provide its life-sustaining and preservative value. Paul wrote to the church about this characteristic of our public witnesses. He says, we are the restoration agents in this world. We are slowing the decay by staying engaged with this world while we trust God to restore it. Romans 8.21, you know what it says? That creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, this world is on a pathway to decay and destruction, and Christians are the only thing slowing that down, while, as Acts 17 says, God is being patient with those who do not believe. Your life is slowing the decay down in this world, therefore giving opportunity for those who are not believers to repent. Isn't that amazing? That as we attach our lives to people in this world, the situations in this world that are corrupt with the hope of the gospel that the decay is slowing. I know it doesn't feel like that, but the salt is useless when it's not attached to those that are decaying. There's something mysterious that happens as we choose to stay engaged to the world while holding on to the hope of the gospel. So let me ask you this question. Is there anyone or any situation that you've just given up on? 
like just keeping the salt in the cupboard, like not even, it's just over there. Maybe you've just on your own volition detached from a relationship without the Lord's guidance. Now, there are certain situations where you have to, right? I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about the ones you've just given up on. The 20 plus years of prayer, nothing, nothing happening. The, the coworker that's so cynical and slanders everyone, just giving up. Have you ever considered that your very presence in that person's life may be the evidence of the Lord's patience to them? Have you ever considered that your presence in the world may be slowing the decay in someone's life? Your presence on that team, your presence in that neighborhood may be slowing the decay and gradually transforming others because you are choosing to remain when you could leave. The last one that we're going to look at is proximity. I'm going to land the plane here. This is similar to preservation, but it's unique as well. Because in order for light to be seen, it has to be in proximity and prominently displayed. Jesus warns against the temptation to take our salvation, make it personal, not public. Every single day of our lives, every single day of your life, Jesus is sending you somewhere. Think about that. Acts 7, or John 17, into the, the, the prayer that Jesus prays. Father, just as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them. Every day of your life, every interaction of your life, you are sent by Jesus if you're in Christ. Because there's no other place to be as a Christian except in Christ. Where is Jesus sending you these days? Tomorrow morning, where is Jesus going to send you? This afternoon, where is Jesus sending you? When is the last time good, hopeful news rolled off your tongue when someone asked you about how you were doing, about your hope, what you're up to these days? There's no hope to be found in this world unless it's found in the church. Is it there, friends? Even in the way that we feel, feel about this witness that we're called to in the world, this responsibility under his lordship as a witness, Friends, it's the Holy Spirit, not us, that bears the brunt of the burden of witness. In fact, the scriptures say this in John 15, that the Holy Spirit will bear witness about Jesus, and then we too will bear witness because we've been with him. So don't walk away today thinking, oh, God, there's just another condemning sermon about evangelism. I know the temptation. I've heard them all. Holy Spirit's bearing witness. We're just trying to stay tethered to him. The light's on inside of you. I love what John Stott says, and this will lead us to the table. We should ask, we should not ask what is wrong with the world. That's what we ask most of the time. He says, for that diagnosis has already been given. Rather, we should ask what happened to the salt and light. So I'll leave that with you. Let's pray together. Father, um, we want to come to you today as those that have been redeemed, as those that have been set free by the power of the gospel. Yet we embody this so imperfectly, Father. Lord, this idea of you being our Lord uh, for far too long has been optional for the American church and for most of us in this room, to be honest. And it's because we don't understand what it means to be in Christ 
that we, uh, that we fail to acknowledge you as Lord and align our lives with your will. And so, Father, we, we want to confess to you today, Lord, that, that, we, that we've lived fearful lives, that even in this moment we have fear, and it leads us to shame, it leads us to hiding. And, Father, um, it's the one thing uh, that we can't do as Christians is hide. You've called us to walk in the light as you are in the light, Father. You've called us to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. So, Father, we want to come to you today and ask you to renew us, to strengthen us, and to be with us. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, Pastor Ryan here. We're so glad that you've tuned in with us and watched one of our online sermons. Our vision as a church is to live as the family of God, together proclaiming and demonstrating the gospel of grace to one another in our city. If you don't have a church home or you're looking for a church, we'd invite you to attend one of our in-person worship gatherings so you can experience all that God has for us as a community of believers on mission.